Anyway, now, I, I believe there are some people here today that need to hear this message. I, I asked the Lord, what in the fact should I talk to, to this amazing group of people? And so I'm looking at you. I don't even know who you are because I don't have the same anointing as my friend Mario does. He, he'll give you a word of knowledge of, you know, half an hour of it. And one of my best friends, who was a freaked out hippie in the 60s, <laughs> you know, long-haired, you know, that kind of dude, uh, he said, stand. And, you know, he stood. He was kind of stoned. So he, he, <laughs> he stood. And then Mario read his mail, and he got delivered from demons, um, delivered from dope, from, from the drugs he was using, got saved, got baptized in the Spirit, got called into the ministry in uh, 30 minutes. <laughs> Just So watch out for God, because he, he does stuff. So I want to give you something today, and I was talking to Pastor David, like what fat could I give you? There's a bunch of cool things I'd love to share with you. But this one, I think, is interesting. I am a chemist. I just want to apologize for that. And uh, uh, Dave, I'm sorry, but I'm not very reverent. I'm, I'm just a nerd chemist that got saved. And so I'm not a pastor. This is a pastor. This is an amazing man. I'm just a nerd chemist that got saved. And so uh, three, uh, in three months before my uh, 17th birthday in Papatoe High School, God saved me. He so altered my life that he freaked me out 40 ways from Friday. So I'm, I'm not, I have no religious background. You understand? I don't come from, you know, 14 generations of preachers and stuff. I'm just a nerd that got saved. If you messed with me in high school, I didn't try and beat you up. Look at me. You know, I'm quite a Maori, but I never developed my warrior skills. So, you know, I played footy and other things and stuff. But if you mess with me in school, I wouldn't try and punch you out. I would simply, I, I'm a chemist. I have a lab. See, so I'd, I'd slip a pill to you in your lunch. And for the next three days, when you went to the toilet, you'd think you were bleeding to death. And if you still messed with me afterward, in the old days, as Mary, we would eat you, Pakeha. So just be glad of this. If, if you were still giving me a hard time, I wouldn't slip you the pill. I had a slightly larger one. I'd stick it in the back of your jeans pocket. When you sat down, the internal pill in it detonated the second one, <laughs> and your back of your trousers burned out. So don't <laughs> screw with me today, all right? Now, what we're going to show you, and we, we've got it up in charts here, and by the way, I'm going to leave this with the church this is, you know, we, we'll shrink it all and give it to you. So if I'm going too fast, I want to apologize, but time is, you know, time is fleeting, Jesus is coming, and, you know, and Colonel Sanders is calling. So, all right, now, I, in, in my um, getting saved and having God show me all kinds of interesting stuff, um, one of the cool things, and I was, told, I was telling Dave that I've spent as long time studying this as George Lucas has on his nonology of Star Wars, okay? <laughs> and I've actually watched more movies than George has. <laughs> so in this thing, there are things that God does that he holds back for generation after generation, and then as it approaches 
the time when he's going to close it all down, he lets them go. And then you see them, and they hit so fast and so powerfully, you can't imagine, first of all, how in the fat we didn't see this before. But this book, this is not an ordinary book. Now, if you've sneaked in here because somebody brought you along, you're going to come along, it's a religious thing. You'll get a fright when you read this book because it's not just a book about religious stuff. As a matter of fact, very little of it is about religious stuff. This is not only a book about God, it is a book God gave us, and it is a book about everything. And when you discover this amazing thing that the gift you have, and you may have more than one of these, God gave you is not religious. Do you know that the Israelis, when God called them, that little blob on the map compared with all the nations around them, the reason they became awesome is because God showed up and took them under his wing. So check this out. Only 10% at the most of Israel were religious. 90% were not. And because of that, yet all of Israel is called to serve the Lord. So in the last few years, we've found at least 40 real gifts given by God to people. And remember, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Even if you screw up with this gift, he won't take it off you. You'll still have it. He gives those gifts to men. And sitting here in this building, there are people who have a gift given to them from God. He may have given it to you before you're born. You'll surely know about it by the time you reach high school graduation type times. And you will know now, tonight, that the gift you were given was not an accident. It was given to you by God, and he wants you to do something with it because here's the power of what this gift is. It is actually what he is. He gives you gifts of what he is. We all know he's a judge and stuff like that. Of course he is. He's not a judge. He's the judge. He's not a warrior. He is the warrior. He, see this thing? He is not an artist. He is the artist. He's not a singer. He is the singer. And when you discover this, you'll find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses on how to do the gift God gave you in here. We, we hope to get this finished soon, but I'm going to give you, Pastor, some, some of the little bits and pieces of it so you can get an idea. I'm saying that like this. God holds back. I, now, I asked him, how in the fat didn't we know about this before? How can for 2,000 years we talk only about the religious side? And I asked him, what do you do on your day off? When it isn't Sunday or Saturday after your Seventh-day Adventist, what do you do? And he showed me. He started showing. We think there may be over a hundred gifts like. But we've found 40. And so we try to just put a few of the scriptures down. We discovered on them a little haiku in the end. I asked her, what in the fact does that mean? And so there's almost 550 pages so far of scripture just on those 40. So some of you sitting here today actually have that gift from God, but you never knew it was his because it wasn't religious. So when he breaks that for you, you'll know two wonderful things. First of all, you have access to a book that'll take that gift that you know you're really good at and jump it like you can't believe. It will become not a little bit better, not even twice as good in 10 times. It will be a quantum leap 
on what you ever could accomplish without him. So don't give up. Don't think because you can't be a pastor, an evangelist, or a missionary. God will get you in all of those things through the gift he's given you in different ways. So what I want to do is take one little facet of three new things that we didn't even know about 100 years ago. I'm not going to take you all through them because this thing would be like 18 years long. (laughs) I'm going to take just one. And I have a book I've been working on, again, as long as Lucas was doing his thing. It's called Fractal Prophets, Quantum Guidance, and Chaos Ministries. And I'm going to take one little bit from the middle one, Quantum Guidance. Quantum Guidance is only a little over 100 years old. Fractal Structures is only 37 years old. Chaos Ministry, Chaos Maths is only about 37 years old. Yet most of all the new electronics you have in the world, most of the discoveries have been made because of those three things. So are you ready? You want one little facet of this, remember, that will blow your mind 40 ways from Friday. So you come in here just to have an entertainment thing, your mind will go too, all right? Here we go. I've got to go very fast on this. The cool, you know, I don't like PowerPoints because as Mario pointed out, some of them have no power and are pointless. This should be a 3D, 3D version that hangs, you know, in front of you, uh, like Avatar or something, but times are hard in the evangelistic field. You put up a black background, which is hard to screen things against, so times are hard. Now, this is a question I hope God will answer for you today. God really loves you. How many have heard that today? How many have seen it in the worship we've done? It is a fairly obvious statement in the Bible that God really does love you. But what in the fact is his plan? That's what I want to show you. Ready? Here we go. For nearly 2,000 years, I put all this here. I'm showing you what my notes are, okay? So you can preach it too. For nearly 2,000 years, we've used God's laws given both in the Old and New Testament. Now, one side thing on this. Never think that God's laws are old-fashioned. You're talking about the one who designed us. I mentioned last week in the conference was held here, God's laws are descriptions of reality from an infinite person. He tells you what is real. Some of that you'll think about religious, but it covers everything. God's laws are no more made up than me saying gravity is an invention. And here's what I said last last week. Yea, verily, if you jump off a 40-story building without a bat cape, without a Spider-Man spray, (laughs) you will accelerate at 32 foot a second a second, and when you strike thy head against the cement, yea, verily, thou shalt be paced. That is a law. Now you can say, I don't believe it. You can go and watch Peter Pan movie, sing, we can fly, we can fly, we can fly, but you will still die when you jump out of the building. God's laws are not to be thrown away. They are specific and amazing. So if you're postmodern or post-postmodern, stick that up your jersey. Seeing how mighty and powerful his works and his creation are all around us, 
show us how wise it is for us to gladly and happily trust him in what he says. Now, many discoveries in how nature worked pointed in the past, we saw them point to two things, God's power and stability. In other words, the sun rises each day on the evil and the good alike. The sun and this rain falls on the just and the unjust. One of our choruses this morning was about what happens when this goes up, this comes down, see? It doesn't matter whether you're pagan or not, you'll still have the consequences of it. So those are real things. But the ones we used to look at in the past when we saw how incredible the universe is was how big he was and how unbelievably powerful he was. But the artist sort of stood by and said, well, yeah, but what about how beautiful? Because they're both going at the same time. But because we did a lot of study, this Newton physics, about that kind, the power and the glory thing of it, the power was there but not the glory. And the people who got the glory didn't have the power. So this shows them both. Sir Isaac Newton, they call you a sir after you get cool. I know. My son just said, I don't have any of the stuff that you're talking about. That is absolutely true, son. We want to. But the good thing is that God has it. And on this, on this is what I've got up now. Have you got Sir Isaac up there? Okay, put Sir Isaac up and then we will all. Isn't he neat? Sir Isaac Newton in the 16th century expressed part of what he saw in the laws of motion. You know, he was a believer in, not only just a believer, he believed in Jesus. He was a real Christian. He wrote more about God than he did on physics and mathematics. Everybody remembers him for the other two, but not for this. Now, while he's taught on how to honor him as great and powerful, what many creative people that I mentioned to you in the arts, like painting, music, and sculpture, who saw his works, knew that nothing he made was ever exactly the same twice. Now, I want you to think about that. Nobody on the earth looks ex is exactly the same as anybody else. It's so wild to see the billions of people and know that nobody, sometimes they look alike, you know. You can have identical twins, but they're not alike. You don't believe that, go out and just go out and get two blades of grass and compare them. Two blades of grass, same kind of grass, different, different. Every fern that we have as one of our visuals of what New Zealand is, and I'm glad we didn't just put that in the flag and throw the other one away. The other one had cross on it, all kinds of cool stuff. But you know this, no singer can sing the song, same song, identically. No artist can paint the same. Now you can photocopy. But that's not the same. God doesn't photocopy people. You go, believe one, believe a two, believe a three, change the color. <laughs> Doesn't do that. So <laughs> then when we saw this, we realized that which is wonderful is also deeply beautiful. It's amazing. All right. Only in the last century did we first begin to discover not only the power of his works, but the wonder of his ways. Two parallel visions surround us. One is unseen, unfathomed, and unpredictable. This is this world of quantum physics and the world of chaos ministries and the fractal structures of nature. 
Do you know your brain is fractal? It is a lot bigger than you think it is, and it's an awful lot bigger than other people think it is. <laughs> this is just hard drives and USBs. The real decisions are made not by your brain, but by your heart. Your brain has a 40,000 neuronal... Your heart has a 40,000 neuronal brain that makes the decisions that are planted and stuck up here. And we didn't know that 27 years ago. I had a major stroke. It knocked out of my brain. It's an aneurysm, not a clot. I'm clot enough already. I don't need any more clots. <laughs> aneurysm blew out 50 years of names. All the names vanished overnight. It was an attack when we were working on the study Bible. So I woke up with, you know, I've seen thousands of movies and sung thousands of songs and written all kinds of books and stuff. Every name I had was gone, erased. If you put a knife and a fork and a spoon down, I couldn't tell you which one was which. I could see, I could hear because it was on the left-hand side. I could speak. I didn't have a drop jaw. But this thing here, I didn't know what it was called. Even though I could look at it and read it, I didn't know it was called a what. Gone. But in, since that was 2009, since that time, a number of different things the Lord showed me, I have over 90% back of what I lost, so that part of the brain has been totally destroyed, which is almost sixth of me. Did I forget anything? The other thing is so common and ordinary, it's all around you. I mentioned the grass, but you won't see it because you don't know how wonderful it is. But when you look at every sunset, it's never the same twice. And there's no single one of you in the world that's identical to anybody else. Do you know how special you are? Even if you die, there'll never be anybody like you. So if you come here today, you don't know him yet. You're gonna, you will love it when you meet him. You will not believe how stupid you have been for so long. Okay? There's this phrase they use. There's a phrase they use in the U.S. It's called "bless your heart." It's a it's a Texan it's a kind of a you know, bless your heart. It it's a nice way of saying what an idiot. You know, he tripped and he broke his foot, bless his heart. All right. Now, there has been more discoveries made in the last century than all the previous area findings in 2,000 years. This is just one of these, and now we've got to go really fast. So are you ready? One, God loves you, but what wonderful plan is there for your life? The quantum world, this that thing I mentioned, is weird. It's filled with odd things. They have all kinds of weird names and strange consequences that can appear to change even while you're looking at it. How <laughs> was that thing? Though? The world of chaos, mass, fractals has, I call them, boundary unpredictabilities. They've got real rules, but they're not the same as the rules that you know from Newton's world. They are rules, but not like other rules. Why did God wait so long to give us this? I think because he thought this, if he gave, if shows you the rules that aren't normally rules, you might stick with those and forget the ones that are normal rules. That would be bad for you. How many of you would like to live in a world where rules are unpredictable, where gravity could simply shift, and you go at 32 foot a second a second up, 
And you went, we went up, up, and we all went up, and we came down, up, and we died. So this is timing I've got. Now, two quick things. Those are both real stories, not made up. Some years ago, a girl, uh, some years ago, a girl, there's a lot of girls some years ago. <laughs> some years ago, a girl asked me a great question. She said this, if God calls somebody to marry you, but that person backslides and marries somebody else, what happens to the other one who stayed faithful? You ever thought about that one? You know, when people say that, a girl, they actually mean me. They say, if somebody, to see what you're going to say about it. It is said so often from the pulpit and so much in Christian books, and I've read a lot of them, we have 15,000 books in our revival library and tracts. We all finish this sentence in our sleep. Here's the way it goes. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. You got that? Give it to you again because you missed it. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay? When I got saved... I had to preach, so I thought, this, everybody's talking about God's wonderful plan for your life. So I preached for a bunch of years on God's wonderful plan for your life. Then I thought, I better look this up in the Bible and see if it actually is there. <laughs> it's always a good thing to know. You're going to tell everybody about the wonderful this or that. You better know it's in the Bible in case you're just idiot. Bless your heart. See? But some deeply sincere kids ask me this. I'm working with teenagers and college students all the time. This is my eighth generation of teenagers and college students. I've got eight generations now. I'm very old, okay? Um, parents with promised children ask me this question. Skeptics who took me to task about it in a dozen different ways. Finally, I thought I'd better look it up, and this is what I found Best way to find the mind of God on something is to seek his face in prayer. Ask him. He can talk to you. It'll freak you out, but he can. <laughs> seek his face and then read what he says about himself in this amazing book. And then, now, you do that yourself, right? You don't have to sit here and listen to somebody else. Do it yourself. Do it yourself. See what you find. I, I can cheat. I've got all kinds of cool stuff. I've got, I've got parallels. I can run PC and Mac and Penguins. I can run anything on the system. I'm a nerd. Nerds do that. I build computers. Okay. Surprise. <laughs> there is no word for plan in the entire Bible. Now, this new version of the Bible, go, oh, we haven't got a word for plan, and put it in. The closest we get to this is the word pattern. <laughs> you can practice those ones. I'm going to show you these very fast. But the idea of a pattern that speaks of God's revelation of direction is not at all some perfected or finished plan. I'm not going to show you what all these things are because there's a whole chunk of them and my poor son's going to go insane trying to make sure that he's covering everything. I won't show you those, okay? Remember this? Lunchtime is coming. It's all kinds of words. There's Mahashavaha. Mahashavatha. Those are all cool words, but what God says in this book is utterly unlike kismet or karma. In either of these words, none of these words that I, that I didn't show you, in Greek or Hebrew is the idea of a finished, completed, locked-in structure, awaking only the revelation of what it already is. What I'm saying to you is this. 
Life is not a movie that is already made, and all you have to do is wait until the next section comes. God is a movie maker, and he's still writing it. That's why the book of Acts has no amen at the end of it. It is not finished. That's a evil bit. Watch. Though every major religion outside of Christianity, which isn't a religion, it's a relationship with a God who made you. And Judaism has inherent in its theology the idea of a fate, a kismet, or a karma. There is no such supported idea in the Bible. Muhammad Ali, he died a little while ago, just a short time ago, okay? He used to be Cassius Clay and stuff. And, but he was on a plane. He got in a 747 one day. And this, he just, you know, he just got anointed as a... <laughs> so he didn't put his seatbelt on. And it's first class. You know, cool. So he's flying. And the stewardess saw and said, Sir, put your seatbelt on. And he said, seatbelt? He said... Muhammad doesn't need no seatbelt. <laughs> Mountain doesn't need no seatbelt. Superman don't need no seatbelt. She said, Superman don't need no 747. Put your belt on. <laughs> so this is what I say. It's good when you're telling people what God has when you look in the Bible and find out it's actually that plan is not really what he's talking about. Now, I can tell you this, and that's what I'm going to say. Scripturally speaking, that while it is absolutely and utterly true that God does indeed love you, that wonderful plan for your life we preachers sometimes talk about is not actually biblical. Nagging questions do not go away about wonderful plans that do not sometimes turn out so wonderful. Some chosen people turn out eventually not to be so choice after all. Things that once seemed so sure now may be turning to dust and ashes. Has that ever happened to any of you? But yeah, the three of you. You others are all lying and I'll get to you later. <laughs> it is sadly true the consequence of somebody else's bad choices somewhere along the road remain even after we have said with full sincerity, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So as Christians, and especially with pastors or counselors who are Christian, we have to somehow help people who ask that question that girl asked a little while ago. What happens to the one that was faithful when somebody else screwed up? What happens to the plan that they both had? So, he doesn't have a plan, but he does have a purpose, which is a lot more wonderful. And here's Romans 8.28. It's a simple scripture. We know that all things work together, all things work together for good to them that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Now, there is no question that God fully, graciously, and wonderfully loves you. He intends your highest good and his power to bring it about regardless of circumstances or choices or chance around you. He can do it. But he has something much more wonderful, and that is a purpose. Plans, I'll give you what I'm trying to say here. Plans belong to the world of cause and effect. Plans are Newtonian. Plans are this always equals that. That plus that always is this. That's plans. 
plans. Every architect knows that. Every engineer knows that. Every builder knows that. Structures need specification. The accuracy of that specification is key to the success of the plan. Now, how many of you have ever had a house built? Three of you. Boy, time's hard. Go to Auckland. They've got tons of houses. They're only like four million each. So <laughs> if you're going to build a house, you've got to have some kind of plan, some, some thing. But does that mean that that which was planned is going to be the way the house actually turns out? No, not because you're there going, I don't like this. See that? You constantly can come in and alter things. So what about footy? People are not predictable. How many of you discover that? People are not Newtonian. Though variables in the real world must be allowed for load factors, stress, plans are the outcome of precisely defined parameters. Plans fit the world of precision, repeatability and predictability. People are not like this. People are not predictable. When I first went to primary school, I fell in love with a girl that I really liked. I never told her. I was freaked out. She was a polio cripple. She had crutches. And I thought she was gorgeous, but nobody seemed to talk to her. So I, you know, there's nothing in primary school or high school or college of how to talk nice to somebody you like. So I just went up and I said, hi, would you be my girlfriend? And she whipped out her, <laughs> she, she belted me over the head with her crutch. That is called unpredictability. I was nice, I smiled. Boy, I didn't have a girlfriend for 20 years after that. <laughs> I just read in the, just read in the, I don't know whether it's Wellington or Washington, the, the footy bit, sport, and it talked about where the <laughs> All Blacks took on Wales in the first few years. If you're going to play, we got, how many serious football players have we got here? I know there's a few because I've hugged you already <laughs> tonight. Okay. When you have any kind of game, you don't have plans. You have some ideas of what you're going to do, but if the guys you're coming up against have changed what they're going to do, you better not stick to a plan or you are going to get toast. So here we got. If the other team changes something drastically, you better change too. The outcome will be quite different than what everybody said it was going to be. A game like 40. Now here we go. We've got all kinds of... We've got Maoris, we've got Aussies, we've got Kiwis, which are Maoris. <laughs> Pacific Islanders, we've got Brits, we've got South Africans, we've got footy, football for the Americans, you know, with the, you know, and all that. Multitudes of possible plans, both individual and corporate, and any meet of two sides. All right, now, no possible single plan can fit all situations and cover all alternatives. In order to do that, if you were a coach, this is what you'd have to do. You would have to totally program every parameter. You would have to include each individual player's movements, even surface resistance, whether the wind was there or not, just for the player, let alone the ball. And all of those things would have to be altered and shifted every millisecond in order for it to be a plan. Okay? No such master plan is needed. 
Though some theologians insist is the only way for even God to win, no good coach thinks any such scenario is necessary. And I think that what gave us this is the master coach. And he works. Whatever you do, he's going to bring about what he wants to do, see? Nothing but a great tribute to a good captain, skill, power, authority, who can allow his team real alternatives and still win. In every game, everything changes all the time. That is why great players get the big money, except in New Zealand. (laughs) Their winning power depends on their ability to be flexible, to bring such an array of skills and expertise to a game that any situation can be turned to an advantage and a victory. That is how we win. Okay? The one thing that never changes is the goal. Now, what if we had footy, rugby, touch, I don't get what it is, where the goal ran around. <laughs> so we all line up, sing our songs, haka, <laughs> and then we toss it out to some dude and everybody else dies, but he gets it, except the goal is running somewhere else. It's heading down the freeway somewhere. How do you ever win when the goal shifts all the time? The goal stays where it is. It never changes. And that's what you've got to go for. All right, getting close. No game is possible if the goal itself is unpredictable. Whatever rules they change in football, the goals will always stay. If the goal keeps changing, everyone would lose the game. In fact, if there is no fixed and certain goal, there's no game at all possible. We know all things work together for good for them that love God who are called according to his purpose. All right, getting closer now. Ah, where's my watch, which I now know the name of. Here it is. That purpose is bigger and greater and more amazing than any person or plan or program ever begun throughout all time. That purpose is his goal. It has ever and unchangingly always been in his heart. And this is what it is. He wants you to be like his lovely son, Jesus. He wants you to be like him and his son. Christianity is not a bunch of rules and not a bunch of religious stuff. It is a relationship. The one who designed us and loves us and and wants the best for our lives. And he brings his own son and he gives him up for us. How better can you get? Every plan, every quote-unquote plan, every intention, every deliberation of his heart holds this as its central theme. It is the focus and beauty of all true praise and honor. What's that? Amen. Amen. I thought you were going to say it's time to leave. (laughs) Always watch the mothers and the ladies of the... Especially the pastor's wives because they have (laughs) special anointings on... I love this. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. And as the other sad woman, I've got to tell her story, because it's a bit like some of you sitting here. She came to me once for counsel. I'm a terrible counselor. I really am. I'm an awful counselor. People go, could you give me counsel, brother? I say, why don't you get What About Bob, the movie, you know, and watch it about eight times, and don't call me in the morning. I'm like a terrible pastor. 
She asked me for counsel. She believed she'd been called to the mission field as a teenager. She had prepared her life for such a calling, okay? She was committed not only to Christ and his cause, but to any situation or circumstance that would bring about God's full usefulness for her life. Then she fell in love with an unattractive Pharisee. No, he wasn't. He was actually a Klingon. (laughs) Do you know how Philistines look like Klingons? (laughs) We will... This is a good day to die. Let's think like that. I thought it was so cool that when God was dealing with the Klingon Pharisee, <laughs> with the Klingon Philistines, he didn't attack them with weapons. He gave them. It's called in the Bible a different name, but it's like hemorrhoids. Can you imagine going out to fight people and you suddenly got hemorrhoids? That's not a good way to die. <laughs> anyway, this girl fell in love with an attractive Klingon Philistine Pharisee, maybe. But he was unsaved. And despite warnings from a family and a pastor, married him. And then slowly watched her whole life turn into ashes. Finally, after an ugly and hurtful rising tide, this is happening every single day in New Zealand, every single day. It's happening to the families. It's happening to the children. I was asked to speak in Parliament because we have the highest number of teenage suicides in the world, this little country. And sitting in the audience was the son of the guy who wrote, Once Were Warriors. This is the way it really is. Finally, after an ugly and hurtful rising tide of his resentment, And her disillusionment, he left her. And in her heart and despair, she did one great thing. She turned back to the Lord. Now she's sitting in church with her three children. And she's listening to the 100th sermon, Variation on God's Wonderful Plan for Your Life. She had almost given up hope. Sure, God had a plan for her life once. Now she screwed up totally, fully, and all she could do was sit there and silently hurt, thinking about what might have been if only she'd done things differently, not ruined that plan. What do you do with a plan that no longer fits the project? What do you do with it? Do you know they lost, almost lost an entire mission? I just watched... Uh, for my devotions, a little bit of that last night. The Apollo 13 mission. Two sets of engineers put a bit together, but one was using metric and one was using the ordinary one. And it didn't quite fit and it nearly blew the whole thing to bits. If you have a plan and it's not changeable, you can die very quickly. They had to figure out how in the fact we make this square thing fit into that round thing. Had to rip bits up and paste them together so they'd come home alive. This is what you do to a plan that no longer fits. You scrap it. You discard it. You throw it away. And there are no doubt hundreds of thousands of people sitting in churches, just like this one today, who have dropped out in despair because they know this. God had a wonderful plan for their life. 
want. Then they, for somebody else maybe, for some awful, tragic, terrible reason, made the one wrong, bad move and blew it away forever. So the bridge is blown up and the die is cast and this is what that funny old poem said, the moving finger writes and having read all your piety and all your wit, cannot bring it back or cancel out a word of it. So said Omar Khayyam, but he was only Muslim and he didn't read the Bible. He read the Koran. So now I'm going to show you what the Bible says about this wonderful plan. I'm not going to tell you what preachers say to her. Christians. Sometimes we go, God has purposed all of this in order to teach you what is really important in your life. I would hate somebody to counsel me like that. Or you must learn to rejoice in what has happened, see that the greatness of God's plan for you. God knew what was best for you, and while we didn't always see His will, we know it is good. Well, all of these things may be said, and even scripturally, in the proper place. God does indeed allow trial and sadness to make us strong. Nothing but sunshine makes a desert. How many of you know that God never promised us we'd never cry, that we'd never have hard times? He never said that. We're told in the Bible to rejoice in all things and count it all joy and to see in all our lives the working of a great and good God who is wise in all of his ways and wonderful in all his works. God does know what is best for us, but such counsel in such a situation is not the point. Was her calling wrong? Was it not God that told her that? It was indeed true God was implementing a plan for her life that plan was now still actually in her, her fall. Everything that happened is part of that plan, see? And the pain and hurt she's gone through is still part of that plan. Counsel to repent, forgive, restore, may be helpful and done as best as she could, but wasn't it all a bit pointless? If she was wrong, her whole early history was only an illusion. Every word she heard as a young, zealous teenager who set her heart to do God's will as fantasy or maybe even false prophecy from people who came and said, God has called you for wonderful things and this is what you're going to be doing. The plan did not, after all, involve the call to mission field, did not really sanction the dozens of directions from Scripture. What she thought was continuous calling from the multitudes of services she had attended was a girl, the deep calling to deep assurance that she was given a gift from God was not true. Either that or in a very deep way, which is even scarier, God had utterly and totally let her down. As this was unthinkable, she chose instead to come to church and mourn. And you may be sitting here this morning, and this is your story. She had done her best. She faithfully, dutifully, doggedly turned up every church Sunday with her kids to again hear one more message on the wonderful plan for somebody else. She resigned herself to a history of hurt, tried to rejoice in the goodness of God, basically cringed every time some young, zealous preacher spoke once more about the wonderful plan. I'm going to show you a scripture that will change your life. It is the point of the potter and the clay. How many of you have ever seen a potter? How many of you have actually done this? Work with clay to make something beautiful. Okay? God senses prophet. Young prophet called Jeremiah. He says, go and watch this. Why is he sending it to him? Not just for him, not even for the people he knows. He's sending it to him for his whole nation. 
And you need to know this because God's talking to you this morning, not just for you, not just for what happened to you, not just for your friends, not just for your enemies, not for family, but for what you are to do for the nation. He told them to go and watch and learn about his dealings with the nations. He told them, watch what the potter did with the clay on the wheel. Arise, it's found in Jeremiah 18, I put the scriptures there. Rise, go down to the potter's house, and I will cause you to hear my words. I went down to the potter's house, he wrought a work. And I have friends, it is a, it's a sermon itself, it's amazing. You take this lump of ugly clay, you get it wet and you thump it around stuff, you stick it on and you put your fingers and it does this. Now, if you're the clay, do you know what it feels like to be stuck on something? You go, oh, that's pretty rough. And then, and it gets worse. And everything's shifting. You know how scary that is? The message you won't forget. If you've ever asked God to use you and then you felt used afterwards. Preachers like the illustration of the pot and the clay because it shows the helplessness and uselessness of people unless they're in the hands of someone with far greater order, purpose, and direction. But that isn't the prime purpose of the potter's sermon. That's not what the young prophet had to learn. As the potter worked, something went wrong. It was not part of his artistic direction. It's not in his creative intentions. It was probably a flaw, a cavity, and imperfection in the lump itself that caused the problem. But this didn't alter the purpose of the potter at all. He did not discard that lump. He didn't throw it away. The potter is not limited at all in his purpose by some problem with the material he himself originally chose for the project. He can take it off the wheel. He can work it over again. He could work it down. He can take out the rocks. He can clean it out. He can put it back on the wheel. He can press and shape and squeeze it till it's fully right for what he wants to do. Here, it's not going to look like the original, but it doesn't matter. It's something else that is beautiful. It is something where he took what went wrong and makes something gorgeous out of it. As long as it doesn't become hard, he can accomplish exactly what he intends for that clay to make something lovely, lasting, purposeful, and beautiful. The vessel he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make it. The point of the parable, he had the power to take something that went wrong and remake it. The only thing that would bring true rejection to that new material is finalized hardness and inflexibility. The only thing that would prevent the fulfillment is to reject or pull away from the hand of the potter and to grow hard and brittle and locked in outside his final intention. What can be done with a permanently disfigured vessel that will no longer respond to the touch of a master's hand? It is fit only for dismissal, for discard, or at worst, destruction, even a nation. For my people have committed two evils. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with our country? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, can hold no water. 
Potter didn't begin with any fixed plan. The potter had a purpose. Now, our Lord, Isaiah 64, 8, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter, and we all are the work of your hand. Back to the girl with the broken dream. As I talked with this woman, she began to weep. Really weep, for she saw for the first time in many years her deepest longings and her deepest callings were not an illusion, were not dreams, were not fantasy. That if God's will for a life was not a plan but a purpose to make her like Jesus, God could give her another chance and another future. Of course, the original mission is gone. There's some things we lose by disobedience we can never get back. Jacob became Israel, walks with a limp for the rest of his life after he struggled with the angel. You can't win a fight with that one. The gifts and callings of God, I mentioned this earlier, without repentance, the same God who can put a broken, damaged nation back on the wheel can begin again the girl who has lost her dreams through disobedience. Are you sitting here today? Is this you? Your story? I'm going to give you the finish to this. I know I'm supposed to leave, but one of my favorite old songs is just a poem without a tune. It's not about a vessel of clay, but an instrument of wood. The, the uh, band that's going to come are not going to play this song because it never had song. It's about what happens to something made wonderful but somehow lost. So before they sing and before we played this final stuff, this is the poem. It's called The Touch of the Master's Hand. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on an old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks? He cried, he'll start the bidding for me. A dollar, a dollar. You then two, only two, two dollars. Who am I get three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going, going, going for three. But far from the back of the room, a gray-haired man came forward and he quietly picked up the bow. And wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what am I bid for this old violin? And he held it up with a bow, thousand dollars. Who'll make it two? Two thousand. Who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them said, we don't quite understand. What change is worth? Swift came the reply. Touch of a master's hand. Many a man or woman with life out of tune and battered and scared with, scarred with sin was auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A massive pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, she's going once, and going twice. He's, she's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd can never quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. God bless you.